welcome. So glad you could be with us uh, today. I'm Barry Petrucci. I get to be one of the pastors at Chapel Hill. Jess Davenport, my co-pastor, is uh, is off today, and um, we have guests with us. Before we get to those guests, though, I want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and listen to the scripture, which is from the Gospel of Luke, 16th chapter. It is the story of the dishonest manager. Uh, and then the first message in the series, it is the earn part of the message, earn, save, give. Go ahead and listen. If you want to skip the scripture or the sermon because you've heard it already, check out your notes and you can see uh, where you can go, take the marker to that place and you can pick up right there with the conversation. <laughs> The scripture today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Hear now these words. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very, in a very little, and excuse me, whoever is faithful in a very little way is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. You're thinking you could have stayed home, right? So I wanted you to see uh, Jim Harnish's video introduction to his book and the series that, that may come our way later on. Um, Jess and I convened a, a small group of folks and um, talked about this concept of give, uh, excuse me, earn, give, try it again, earn, save, give. <laughs> Long morning. And, um, it, it's important that we understand that on the one level we're talking about money, on another level we're talking about stewardship of all things. How we are managers, good stewards, caregivers of all things on earth. As we talked about that, we fell upon this concept of, of the braiding of three things. And three things that are important and strong on their own, but together um, form something that's the, of a rope, a braided rope. And uh, Don Herzog, grateful for this graphic designer who gave us uh, our design for today, and we'll continue to use it into, into the spring. Um, when you hear money in the message today, and when we continue to talk about it, I want you to hear something broader than that. This is about how we resource all things that God has given. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth, O oh God, the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing, acceptable in your sight, O 
in the name of the Christ. Amen. It is coming. We know this because you cannot turn on TV without someone telling you it's coming. I think 42 days, it is coming. In 42 days, the pumpkin spice is giving way to peppermint mocha. <laughs> I confess I had a peppermint mocha yesterday, so I'm ahead of the curve. Ghosts and goblins are shut away for another year as Santa and Grinch and the baby Jesus make their way from basements or down from attics, just waiting for trees to be perched in great halls and living rooms and porches. It is a transition of holiday. Yep, we are almost there. That great festival of animal fats, and that starts with Thanksgiving, and then into the season of the Savior of the world, celebrated with plastic cards and newly levied debt, or grossly overextended debt. Or maybe, maybe just maybe those of us who call ourselves progressives at Chapel Hill are all enlightened and we make what we make, we save faithfully and we give gratefully. For us, I have absolutely no doubt we are good stewards of all gifts of goodness given by, by God to us all of those gifts that we, we pledge to use appropriately when we become members of the church from time to talent to community to prayer to, yes, even money. I want to acknowledge with gratitude a sermon from the Reverend Dr. Sue Shorb Sterling for shaping some of my thinking this week. So John Wesley, um, the great founder of the Methodist movement along with his brother Charles, he founded this tradition with a bunch of friends from one of those outstanding elite British university back in the 1700s. They were a holiness club. That is, they wanted to be about actually seeing if they could forge a method for living alone, living in community, and living in the larger world where they could pay deep attention to what it takes to be personally pious and socially holy. Now, pious has come into our culture as kind of a negative thing, and not so for Wesley, and not so if we read Scripture. Piety is really about making space in our lives where God can enter in and, and change us. So they were concerned about personal piousness and social holiness, where righteousness and justice get lived out in the world. In short, these students wondered if they could center themselves so deeply in learning and prayer and conversation and acts of goodness, justice, and mercy in the world that they actually, actually could take on the name Christian with substantive meaning. Imagine where they could take on the name Christian in such a way that they actually resembled something of the Jesus they sought to know ever more deeply. With Pastor Jess recovering, I kick off a three-week series that is a start. It's a, a mini part of a larger conversation we will have in the spring. Earn, save, give. We wanted to do a little piece of it now because for many folks, um, the end of the calendar year becomes a time of significant giving, and, and we, don't, we certainly don't want to discourage that. Um, but our fiscal year is July 1 to June 30th, so we'll be talking about it again in the spring, not just around money, but about our use of all things and how do we, how do we serve the church and, uh, most importantly, the larger community in the name of Christ. So Jim Harnish on the video, um, who, has pastor, who has roots as a pastor in Michigan, served Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida for 22 years. And he wrote this little book and series with a study book, workbook, based on Jesus' teaching beginning in a dusty old sermon called The Use of Money. So while every year you hear about money, again, I remind you the same principles apply for everything that we hold dear as managers of stuff God gives us. 
God provides gifts, good gifts, again, time and talent, gifts and service, and our own testimonies, our own individual stories of how God has worked in our lives, the big ways and the small ways. I've already told you that a little team has been working on this. Uh, at the bottom line is to strengthen us as followers of Jesus to be better stewards or better managers. Stewardship is really a churchy kind of a thing, but it really has to do with managing. How do we manage what God has provided? Okay, so let's get it out there. Some 14 years before the official Methodist church was born at the first Methodist ever conference, which is saying something, because Methodists have a lot of conferences. The first ever Methodist conference at Lover's Lane Church in Baltimore, Maryland, get it, on Christmas Eve, 1784, bunch of pastors, all bachelors, obviously, come together and form this denomination. In 1760, 14 years earlier, Wesley preaches this sermon, The Use of Money, with the imperatives, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Three simple, hard concepts. And y'all might just be shutting down about now because I sound like one of those infomercials, right, trying to get you to make sure your investments are safe by investing in precious metals. <laughs> Fear not, people. Wesley bathes his theology of money, his understanding of God and money in a sizable dose of calling on us to be wise. That's so much easier, right? Just be wise. Got to have wisdom, people, he said sort of with his British accent, I'm sure. Maybe we talk about wisdom even less than we really talk about money in our culture. But wisdom has a really long history among people trying to figure out this faith thing in a wide variety of times and an even wider variety of cultures. Wisdom is something to be acquired and honored. Older folks, like me, are most often honored as having wisdom because they have an earned accumulation of experience and reason. One of the books on my shelves from the Yale Anchor Bible series is Roland Murphy's The Tree of, Tree of Life. Murphy is clear that wisdom can be defined as godly understanding of reality. Love that. Wisdom is a godly understanding of reality. He says wisdom deals with daily human experience in the good world created by God. And so Proverbs 2.6 reads, God gives out wisdom for free, for free in plain spoken knowledge and understanding. God's a rich mine of common sense for those who live well, a personal bodyguard for the candid and the sincere. God keeps an eye on all who live honestly and pay special attention to God's loyalty God's loyally committed ones. That's the message translation of Proverbs 2.6. There's a whole genre of books within our Bible called wisdom literature. Writings like Proverbs, a big, a big chunk of Psalms, all of Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. And less familiar from the Catholic canon of the Bible, the book of wisdom, the wisdom of Sirach, and much of the book of Baruch. King Solomon is claimed as author of much of this work. Solomon, who did not ask God for material, material stuff very much, but asked for wisdom, wisdom to discern between good and evil. God kind of liked that. God kind of liked that request and granted Solomon's request. Wisdom came accompanied by bonus, riches, and honor. Lucky Solomon. But, but it's a little harder to stay pure, right? It's a little harder to stay pure in your discernment between good and evil when dealing with the complexities of wealth and the complexities of people telling you just how great you are. 
Would, would God continue to bless Solomon with wisdom when complicated by wealth and honor? Does what happened with Solomon transfer to us? Us who seek wisdom in our lives complicated by relative wealth and much of the world telling us, well, we're Americans and we are so fortunate and how much they depend on our greatness and how much we are honored and how much they want to be like us. It's complicated. Even if all of this is sometimes a cultural love-hate kind of relationship. But it's who we are. It is what we are. So Jesus tells the parable that is our text for today. Jesus tells it, I think, as an approach to the question, how do we deal with wealth and people saying we're great at the same time we seek to be wise in using those things? So commonly called the parable of the dishonest manager, it's easily one of Jesus' most confounding and complicated teachings. So let's dig in. <laughs> the manager who worked for a rich man is defrauding his boss. Being a little dishonest in accounting, what is known in the century just before ours, it became known as cooking the books. If you want to know what cooking the books is all about, there's this little civil trial going on in New York State right now dealing with allegations of billions of dollars in well-cooked books. The manager in Jesus' story is living a lavish lifestyle with the owner's money while he makes the accounting look like these are expenses for just doing business. When the boss catches him, the manager tries to secure his relationship with his boss's customers by reducing what they owed the boss. You see, the manager was freaking out because he's not in good health and can't do manual labor. And he doesn't want to get caught and get thrown in prison. His actions secure his status with the customers to the detriment of his boss's bottom line. The owner's profit is suffering. The manager, well, well, the manager is a piece of work. I mean, the manager is a shrewd guy. The manager is counting on these grateful customers to assist him when he turns to them for help in the wake of the boss's understandable anger. When we read this parable in Luke, I think we expect Jesus to simply reprimand such a crooked manager. After all, he's stolen it from his boss in so many ways, lied about it, and essentially bribed customers with resources that were not his own just to protect his own assets. What we get is Jesus praising this manager. What we get is Jesus praising this manager, this trusted steward of the boss's property. And we say, Jesus, why? What are you doing? Because the manager was wise in his approach to the problem so that he would survive his own bad behavior. Hmm. That really doesn't help. It really doesn't help. Or it seems like a Jesus inconsistent thing. And that is very much the way Luke tells the story of Jesus. Just when you think you have Jesus all figured out, you find yourself scratching your head and simply reaching out for one of the other four Gospels. But look, I think Jesus wants us to understand that Jesus did not tell this parable to reiterate teachings about honesty. That would have been easy, and it would have been short. Jesus' students, his disciples, mostly as good Jews, knew the Torah. They knew the books of the law. They knew right from wrong. They knew what honesty looked like. And in this instance, Jesus is telling them that they are to be wise in using what they have been given. Wise. In his paraphrase of the scripture in the message, Eugene Peterson uses these English words to express what Jesus was saying in Aramaic that was translated to Greek. The translation goes, I want you to be smart in the same way. 
but for what is right. If you're honest in small things, you're going to be honest in big things. If you're crooked in small things, you're going to be crooked in big things. This is why God gave Solomon both wisdom and riches. God was hoping that with wisdom, a godly understanding of human reality, Solomon would use his riches and honor for good. And the result? Mixed. Solomon did to some extent, but later he, like most leaders of Israel even today, sorry, contemporary commentary, even Israel today, the old and the new lose sight of God and use riches and position for personal gain. It wasn't his riches that led to his demise. It was the allure of what his riches could provide for him that led to his downfall. We ask, so what? So what, preacher? I think the so what is that our economy depends on our becoming ever more increasingly a consumer culture. And it makes it really, really hard for us to be wise with our use of money and the honor that often comes with money. We gain or earn all we can so we can spend all we can or spend beyond what we earn more usually. Paul writes to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Money is not evil, Paul says. But the love of money becomes evil. To love money is to give it character, to give it personality, to personify and even, even to deify it, to make it a competing God. It is as important as human contact or even so important that it takes on God-like qualities. And so the competing God is named by Jesus Mammon. Mammon. At the end of the text, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and the competing God of money called Mammon. In contradistinction, John Wesley wrote that money is a gift, a gift of God answering the noblest of ends. He says, in the hands of his children is food for the hungry. Money is drink for the thirsty. Money becomes clothing for the naked. It gives to the traveler and the stranger where to lay his head, a means of health to the sick, of ease to those that are in pain, eyes to the blind feet to the lame. So no, money is not evil in and of itself. For Wesley, and I think for Jesus, there is only one love. And we need to figure it out because it needs to be God or it needs to be money. We cannot serve both. How we wisely use all of the resources given to us as earthly manager of God's gift is the gift God gives us in wisdom. And so we begin. So we begin. Earn. Earn all you can. And seek wisdom for how to make use of that. And aside, I would speak quickly, is that in the earning, we need to be mindful about being faithful in the way things are earned. The Methodist movement from the very beginning became solid supporters of guilds and unions in order to keep individuals and the collective working in the Industrial Revolution safe. Be mindful how you earn. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And advocate for others to do the same. Amen? Amen. Welcome back. Today I have guests with me. Uh, we have Shirley and Jim Freeman. Shirley and Jim have been members at Chapel Hill Church for quite a while. Um, they were one of the first people to welcome us in as new pastor and family to Chapel Hill. 
and we have been uh, working together in the ministry of the church and in uh, deep friendship for many years, even as I'm planning on moving on come, come June. Um, Jim and Shirley are still with us and supportive, still with us in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I asked them first just to give us a little clue about who they are, tell us about yourselves, and uh, we'll go from there. Whoever. Well, hi, this is Shirley. Um, I'm from Schenectady, New York. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. My parents were active there. And they, my mom was the treasurer of the church for many years during my childhood. So we would, we would hear that cha-ching of the adding machine all day long. Um, and they also were finance secretaries for quite a while, which means they um, kept track of uh, the giving, basically. So sometimes in the evenings, at, at bedtime, they would, or yeah, I would, they would be at the dining room table and I would be hearing them going, going over accounts and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know what the, the details, but anyway, so Church was always important in our family, and so was money um, in the sense of keeping track of it, being good stewards of it. Um, when I was a kid, my parents also, um, we had a, an allowance that we had to keep track of, and uh, our income and our outgo, and every week we had to quote, update our books, and if if we were a day late, you know, we'd have a dime off of our allowance, and two days late, 20 cents off, that kind of thing. So keeping track of, of money was important. We also had clothing allowance, which was um, a way of keeping us from begging for things, and, um, and, and again, tracking and being good stewards of, of, our, of our money. Um, so being part of the church was incredibly important to me as as a youth and young adult and even when I was single and working life I still went to a church and and gave money and then um, for Jim and I after we got married and moved here Chapel Hill has been an incredibly important part of our, our life here since 1984 and um, I've I've served in various capacities of the of the church, often on the finance team, and finance secretary and things like that. But also with children and other exciting things. As far as jobs, I was a computer programmer back when I was single and and before we had children and then I was a stay-at-home mom for 25 years and then since then I've been exercising my passion by working at this is a bookstore and bookbug and tutoring kids in reading and doing story time and all that good stuff and I'm Jim I grew up uh, in the Covenant Church, which has its origins in um, Swedish culture and uh, evangelical Christianity. Um, I came to United Methodism in college, really. I attended and met Shirley at Allegheny College, which was loosely affiliated with the United Methodist Church at the time. I became very interested in Christian theology and um, became part of a, of a tight Christian community there, so that was pretty cool. Um, when I went on from college to graduate school, I participated all through graduate school in a multi-denominational campus ministry uh, at Indiana University, uh, which again was, was formative and um, a really nice environment to, to continue my growth as a Christian. My background uh, educationally is in chemistry, and so once I finished college and, and graduate school, I uh, started using chemistry to, to make a living. Um, 
Uh, we came to Kalamazoo because I accepted a job with, at the time, the Upjohn Company, which has its origins in Kalamazoo, and I spent 37 years in a research and development career in the pharmaceutical industry, mostly in leadership positions, but always closely connected with science, which uh, was and remains a passion for me. Um, but that really became the primary way in which we earned our living, the primary way in which we um, you know, generated uh, the financial means to support our lives, our family, and significantly our church. Um, that's been a priority for us from the beginning. I learned a few things about you know, how a family might productively teach children and keep track of money from, from Shirley largely. Financially, um, uh, you know, our family was uh, middle class growing up, but we didn't pay a particular uh, amount of detailed attention to how money was tracked. I had an allowance, I think, for a few years as a kid. Um, once I was in high school, I started getting jobs and, you know, kind of earned the money that I would want to have available to spend um, or to help with college expenses. But once I got to know Shirley, I, I discovered things like clothing allowances and um, even details like uh, keeping track of the uh, amount of gas that you put in the car so you could watch gas mileage and the amount of money being spent on, on gas. Um, I remember informally, the two of us, once we got married, um, we agreed that, uh, at least at the beginning, we would never individually make a purchase more than $10 without discussing it with the other person. Um, <laughs> that <remember>. changed. <laughs> it did change. <laughs> and I remember getting a laugh out of our friend Barry uh, when we shared that little detail of our early married life with him. I don't remember laughing at you, but it's entirely <laughs> possible. So, um, so, so we kicked off this series um, based on John Wesley's teachings on um, on financial stewardship, but really it, it goes bigger than that. And as I said on Sunday, that the the basic um, ideas of earning and saving and uh, giving go beyond money to our use of time and talents and uh, being mindful in, in prayer and uh, telling, uh, telling our own stories, giving testimony to who we are and where we've been, such as you're doing um, today on podcast. I'd like to focus a little bit on earning. So um, we use this Luke text, uh, Jesus telling the parable of the dishonest manager who um, has been cooking the books uh, as as the gender doesn't matter except that in that day it would have been it would have been told about a male worker um, the dishonest manager was uh, cooking the books in such a way that the one to whom he was accountable his boss uh, would not necessarily know what was going on but when he did find out um, this uh, dishonest manager was going to get in trouble and did everything he could to cover his butt as it were um, to make sure that he came out of this um, at least having the favor of those who owed the boss money so um, it's, it's a convoluted story it's a difficult uh, text because it doesn't sound consistent with Jesus um, but but Wesley talks about earning in such a way that uh, he, he calls us to accountability to make sure that how we're we are earning um, has internal consistency and, and, and is consistent with our values I wonder if you could talk about um, how how you have made decisions in your in your professional lives and as you're in your personal lives for that matter about what you would and what you, what you would not do uh, in order to, to earn money uh, how do you how do you keep it how do you keep it clean as it were 
Um, particularly, you know, it's challenging when you're working for other people. Some would say it's challenging in the corporate world. Um, you've seen lots of changes within that corporate world. Even within one corporation, you've seen changes in, in management and uh, the level of respect you might have, the level of respect you might get from the corporation. So I'm not going to fill in the blanks, but if, you, if something occurs to you about how you make decisions about what's okay to do and what's not when you're when you're earning money i'm happy to make a few comments and (laughs) surely you can supplement um first of all the the scripture is really difficult to understand and and process so i'm not going to be able to offer any kind of explanation or commentary on that um and i will say uh I'm, i'm a pretty well uh I would describe it as high C, so high compliance person. I like following rules um, and any hint of dishonesty, and there's certainly a hint of dishonesty in that scripture, um, would be very difficult for me to accept, uh, certainly not in myself and and also not in other people. Having said that, um, thoughts about uh, how my values or our values might um, uh, relate to the ways in which we earn money. I, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate and privileged uh, in, in my professional life, right? Even at the point where I was deciding what direction to take my career as I was emerging from school, the economy was good at that point, and so I had options. And it, it felt good to be entering uh, an industry that seemed like it was helping people um, and I and I con- continue to believe that um, it, it was a privilege to be able to work um, in companies in an industry that that by and large is trying to help people while continuing to participate in a capitalist economy right um, but I have no trouble reconciling uh, those two thoughts um, You know, through education, through upbringing, through the, you know, good fortune of, of genetics and environment, um, I, like all of us, uh, were blessed with certain abilities. Um, and um, like all of us, uh, you know, we're in the position of being able to decide how hard are we going to work. And to me, and I think I think these ideas kind of came into consciousness during college as as I reflected on what I was learning about religion and relationships and um, and careers uh, through my education um, I I think about the talents uh, and the willingness to, to work that were each granted um, and I, I feel a sense of responsibility. I feel even a sense of call um, to use those things in ways that um, help the world, help people, um, help God's creation in in whatever ways that that might apply. And I would say, you know, without recalling specifics, I would say that kind of thought process often entered my decision-making throughout my career. Choices I was making, things I was choosing to emphasize, um, those were have always been strongly influenced by my understanding of, of God's call in our lives. Yeah, I mean, I think I grew up with the idea that you, that you made sure that you, um, I, I don't want to say individualism super, that you basically took care of yourself so you used your resources okay which which might be your intellect or it might be your um, family background or whatever you took you you use those to to benefit the world my father used to have a phrase optimize prime values which you know we don't need to go into now but basically you tried to use what you had be responsible and use what you had to for lack of a better term, further God's kingdom. 
so, so let's go there for a minute, Shirley. Um, churches don't talk about earning money. Uh, we are a nonprofit and we understand about receiving people's gifts. Um, sometimes we need to let folks know where we are and encourage them to give when, when the balance sheet is not doing necessarily what we want it to do, which is often. Um, what is the responsibility of that community uh, in, in receiving what other people have earned? What is the responsibility of like the a church, church yeah, receiving what other people? I, so as we receive a gift from the Freemans or anybody else, what is the responsibility of the collective of the church? I I think it would be to similar to what an individual's responsibility would be to to use the resources that you have to benefit the world further God's kingdom. I would also s say it would include discerning together. So trying to work together, whether it's paid professionals or lay people or combination, depending on the circumstance, work together to try and discern what that, uh, what that use should be. Jim, anything to add? Uh, I'd like to support what Shirley is saying, but, but maybe use slightly different words. Um, I think the United Methodist Church, but Chapel Hill in particular, has clearly stated, um, cl clear statements of mission, of vision, where we're heading, um, of what we value on that journey toward the vision. And I think the responsibility of Chapel Hill as it receives financial gifts from our constituents, from our members, um, is to use those funds in complete alignment with that mission with that vision for where we're headed in the future. Yeah. One of the things in the scripture from, from Sunday is that um, Jesus, uh, particularly in, in echoing some of, of what's in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament that he would have known well as a Jew, um, was really calling positively was calling out the dishonest manager not for being not not applauding for being dishonest but uh, to have the wisdom to know that he was going to have to take care of himself and was going to have to figure out a way to do that so he not, wasn't necessarily saying that was a good way to do it um, but given where things were going uh, going to have to minimally start with wisdom to, in order to maintain and, and rebuild the life that he had called into question by, by, um, by ripping off his employer. We've come through, I'm not sure we've come through, we continue to go through an era uh, where institutions are often distrusted um, where pharmaceutical industry has been called into question, uh, where science itself has been has been called into question, and um, and I'm wondering because you had a really pretty stalwart um, sense that that you were doing something fundamentally good and fundamentally good for humanity, and I and I and I stand concurring with that because I've benefited personally. Uh, <laughs> Uh, by pharmaceuticals and and by the good nature of pharmaceutical companies who have who have helped to provide drugs for me that that uh, my insurance would not cover. Um, but I'm wondering how do you how do you make your way to stand against a, a, a shifting tide in popular culture and this may be a bigger bigger question you want to go to, but I think it's particularly particularly cogent for someone who's working locally in the pharmaceutical industry that that was able to pivot rapidly to respond to uh, our COVID uh, crisis. So any any thoughts of, about that that you've you've been able to 
continue to earn in a, in a context where not everybody thinks your your industry is wonderful. A few thoughts. You're right. You're raising some really big topics, but very interesting topics. Um, let me go back to the sermon just for a moment. As I was listening to the sermon on Sunday and reflecting on this problematic scripture, um, one of the thoughts that occurred to me is that, at a minimum, um, in through this story, Jesus is um, causing us to, to think about the management of money. Um, it's a difficult situation. Um, the right thing is, it's, it's, it's an ambiguous situation. It's difficult to know what the right behavior would be, but the manager chooses a behavior. Um, it has consequences for the manager, for the workers, for the owner. Um, it's not perfect, um, but the story causes you to focus on the difficulty, on the ambiguity, and on the need for someone to take responsible action. And even if I or you might not do exactly what that manager did, um, at least it causes us to think, well, what might we do in that circumstance? And if I try to you know, kind of generalize into uh, the industries we work in, the companies we work for, the roles that we have in our in our work lives, um, it's it's a mistake to assume uh, that the standard is perfection. Uh, these are human institutions, human organizations, uh, individuals working within and and through these these institutions and. It can, at times, be messy, right? Um, so what do I do in, in ambiguous or, or messy circumstances? I try to step back mentally and think about what's the fundamental purpose? What, what is the reason that this organization exists in the first place? And am I aligning my actions, making my decisions um, in ways that help to focus on that larger, positive, beneficial purpose. I think that could be true of a, of a company, of, of an industry, of a church, and it could be true for each of us in our individual lives. Does that help? I, that does help. And um, unless we think that it's just for-profit corporations, uh, it wasn't too many years ago, uh, 2019, where the leadership of this church had to come together and make some decisions about uh, our support of the larger denomination because we had some critical places where we understood our values, mission, and vision to be coming into conflict with some core teachings of the denomination, mm -hmm. uh, particularly around matters of sexuality and gender identity. And we were saying um, uh, at at high levels and, and more broadly in the, in the congregation that we could not support that with our dollars any longer. And so we, for a time, withheld our financial support of the denomination until we were clear that the Methodist movement within Michigan was more where we were than the denomination was. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. now we are working uh, to see that shifting in the entirety of the denomination and trust that that is that is in fact uh, going on. So, uh, so having those pinch points between what we do, what we and what we earn, and, and how we get it, those pinch points happen in lots of settings. Yep, I agree, and I think that's where Shirley's thoughts about discernment um, are critically important. Um, discerning what's the right course of action in those circumstances, um, and and devoting the time of leadership of, of our entire church community in understanding what should we do here. It's a bit ambiguous, it's a bit problematic, um, but, but we know we want to decide on a course of action. Well, uh, lest, lest you think you're exempt, uh, you're dealing with the same kind of thing. You're, you're fortunate enough to be working in a bookstore that is open and affirming and uh, has been able to to be clear about uh, its willingness to handle books that may uh, not be um, all that popular within a culture of taking books off the shelves. 
and restricting accessibility. So uh, kudos, and if you have something to add in, in the, those areas, you know, um, would there be a point at which you would have to say, I'm not going to earn money at this place because of what they're willing to put on the shelves or not? That's a good question. Since I, in general, uh, agree with and care about the values that the bookstore seems to care about, I don't. I haven't had too much of that kind of conflict. So. Yes, there are certain areas where maybe something would happen that I would feel that I couldn't support the store anymore. But in general, yeah, the double-edged swords come up in lots of places, and and I think that's part of what's going on in, in this uh, text that we had from from Luke. Um, well, you've been patient. Is there anything you were hoping we were going to talk about that we didn't? Um, or fearing that we were going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I think you ended the sermon basically saying, earn all you can, right? I did, but also with the with the reminder that we do it in, and do it in a way that is safe for us and others. Do no harm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I thought that was an interesting. I thought it was an interesting way to to end and to think about. And um, I don't have anything to say. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I. I agree. Earning money and figuring out how to use it responsibly in in the world that God has created um, to further God's kingdom that that's been a big part of our life, and and I think it's important for everyone to consider how how can they do those things. I also think it's super important for raising the next generation and people can do it in their families I would love to see more um, education around stewardship and financial management and all that kind of thing in our schools and in our churches and stuff like that because I think it's a subject that people are feel icky about but also it is it's big it's important well, we go on uh, this coming week with um, the with this, the second part of the equation. This week was earn, next week is save, and then we go on to spend. No, give. Um, <laughs> um, we don't see so so the, the, the save and the give pieces become part of that uh, entire picture of kind of individual and family mission when it comes to, it comes to money. Um, so look forward to getting on with that for now. Thank you, Jim and Shirley Freeman. Appreciate you and uh, look forward to seeing you all on Sunday and come around next week for the podcast. And I trust that Pastor Jess Davenport will be back with us.